Uh, as we come to Revelation 14, uh, we have to remember... Uh, we got to the end of uh, chapter 11, and we have seen the trumpets, we've seen the seals. And then right there in chapter 12, 13, and 14, it like takes a break. And then when you get back to chapter 15, then it again begins to explain the bold judgments. And we see those um, happening very quickly. And so chapter 12, 13, and 14 really just kind of seem out of place when you look at the flow of it. Uh, but I believe chapter 12 and 13 are uh, us looking at the tribulation from Satan's point of view. And not just the tribulation, but God's trying to explain to us why. Why is this great judgment coming on mankind? Because we have an enemy and he is seeking who he may devour and he is seeking to destroy and to move and to work. I heard uh, David Jeremiah say today that um, we have to stop believing that Satan is God's equal because he is not. He is a created being. He does not have the power of God. And so uh, what he does is not in the same realm as the power and authority of God. And so in chapter 12 and 13, we looked at that about the uh, Satan thrown out of heaven, the woman persecuted, uh, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth. And it really finishes up there in verse 18 with here is wisdom. Let he who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And then we jump into chapter 14, and it's really, uh, it almost seems like it doesn't fit either, kind of like 12 and 13. Uh, I believe God's word is perfect and true in every way, and God has it there for a reason, even if it is difficult for us to understand, okay? And so it almost seems like, uh, to quote people like John MacArthur and Paige Patterson and Adrian Rogers, that if you're reading this and you're living through the tribulation period or you're asking yourself about all this death and all this judgment and now you've seen this, uh, the, the reason behind why, it's almost like chapter 14, God flips the script and says, but don't, don't, don't worry. Don't, don't forget that, that I win. All right, don't forget that I have everything taken care of from my side of this. And so when we go through chapter 14, it is... Uh, very exciting, very encouraging, and it looks like just a snapshot to remind people of how it's going to happen, right? Because when you've been through the judgments and you've read about the enemy that we face, it's kind of like if you remember when we went through the different seals and the different trumpets, God would show us devastation, 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 and then an encouragement, right? Don't, don't lose hope. And then we would go through and we'd go through and we'd go through and then he'd give us some encouragement. And so chapter 12 and 13, just reading them, looking at how Satan is at work and he's trying to, to kill the Jewish people and he's tried to kill the, uh, the child that was born and how he's chased them into the desert and all of these things. It's almost like Jiminy Christmas. And then chapter 14 is here once again, this reminder, this encouragement. And I think that's fitting when you read the Word of God. It is a, a book of correction many times, right? The Bible tells us to repent, to turn from our wicked ways, that we are sinners. But yet on the flip side of that, it is a book of encouragement that even though we do not deserve the love of God, we can't earn the love of God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And even though we're in a broken world, in a sinful world, in a world that is, that is, it is dominated by death and heartache and pain, there is coming a day, right, when there will be no more sickness or pain or death because the former things have passed away. And so I think it is always encouraging to me when I read through the Word of God that God knows us. He knows just how to correct us. But then yet, before we get too discouraged, there is encouragement. There's hope. And so when we look right in tonight, we're jumping right in here in verses 1 through 5. And I believe that it gives us just a picture, a reminder that Christ is going to win. I think it is telling us about what it's going to be like when he comes back in the end of chapter 19. And so it says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. That's important having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God." This is a very difficult passage of Scripture because you see Mount Zion, and some people would say, well, that is the Mount Zion in heaven, or others would say, no, it's Mount Zion on earth. And then you have a picture of the 144,000 who the Bible says would live through the tribulation, who would be unable to be killed. So it doesn't make sense for them to be in heaven. But then yet we hear kind of a picture of heaven rejoicing for what has happened, for what's going on. And when we get down to verse 4, it then explains to us who the 144,000 are. And this is not a new concept because we've already seen this. If you remember in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 17, if you want to flip over there to see the context of it, we have seen the seals, uh, we've seen the conqueror, the conflict, we've seen scarcity, and then the sixth seal is cosmic disturbance, right? And it's a time of death and destruction and God's judgment. And it ends up in verse 17 saying, For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And so that's the question. Who can survive the wrath of God? And so then it turns right into chapter 7 and says, after these things, right? So explaining the next moment, the next situation, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on our foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And so there are different views on the 144,000. And we've looked at those, so we won't go over. Right? If you're a Jehovah Witness, these are the only people that are going to be in heaven. 
144,000 people. Uh, some people believe that this number represents the church of all time. It's a, it's a number of completion that, that God has a number. And then others, like myself, believe this is a specific number of Jewish evangelists that God has set apart, just like John the Baptist, for a particular mission. And when we see this here in verse 1 through 5 of chapter 4, we look in verse 3. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. And so some people say these are 144,000 virgin evangelists, all right? As Paul said, marriage is honorable, right? That the marriage bed is honorable and it should not be defiled. But Paul also said, right, if you can be single and serve the Lord, that is great too, because why? You don't have to worry about putting food on the table. You don't have to worry about being a father. You don't have to worry about being a good husband. It frees you up from the struggles of life. Not saying that it's less valuable, but some people say, no, this just means that they weren't uh, defiled with the wickedness of the Babylon, the woman. For these are virgins. So, you know, once again, one of two opinions. Um, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now, some people will say, well, okay, what does this mean? How are they following the Lord? Well, I think it's one of two things. One, it is a sign of their obedience to Him. Where He leads them through the tribulation, through the Holy Spirit, is where they're going to go. Right? To all the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel. But also, I believe, it can refer to the time of the millennial kingdom when Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem, that they will continue to serve him um, with total uh, obedience during that time. Um, but look what it says there. These were redeemed from among men being first fruits. And this word for first fruits, some people say, well, they're the first people saved. No, what it, what it can mean is that they are the beginning of what God is doing. Right, They were saved to reach others. Right, You were saved and then given a mission to go to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And there are two passages of Scripture that are not in your notes, but I hope that you have your Bibles with you. Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5. Because when we read this, we see the character of these individuals the calling of these individuals, and that God has a special plan for them. And you've probably said this and thought this. If everyone who came to church was committed to the things of God, what could we get accomplished? I mean, think about that, right? If people would give and serve and do the things that God's Word said, just imagine how much we could accomplish. But what usually happens is what? 10% of the people do 80% of the work. As a pastor, I honestly feel like most of the time I am dragging people along rather than equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry because we're always chasing someone that's falling through the cracks. We're always trying to get someone back that's, that's drifting in their walk with the Lord instead of empowering people. But when you think about these different people throughout the Word of God like Daniel, 
right? Who was totally sold out to the Lord. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, totally sold out to the Lord. When you think of people like Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha, what they did for God when they were sold out for Him. Now just imagine if somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 to 70 of if there are 65 to 70,000 foreign missionaries in the world today, depending on who you ask. So a force double the size of evangelism now, but are totally sold out to God, right? They're not trying to move their family onto the mission field. They're not trying to get back for furlough. They're not trying... 144,000 evangelists who can go anywhere, preach anywhere, and there is nothing that Satan can do to stop them, all right? And I want to read two passages of Scripture to you from Ephesians 5, and I don't want to read them. So if someone would 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 do the honors of reading Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14, we see what it would look like to be sold out for Christ. Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us, and hath given, given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, sweet-smelling savor, for fornication and all uncleanliness, for covetousness, let it not be among, be once named among you as becoming saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talk, nor jesting which is not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the Christ, God, let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh wrath of God upon children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers of them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are in light, in the Lord walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whosoever doth make manifest his light, wherefore he says, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead. Thank you. So you see here this these two different pictures, right? You see verse one there. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for sweet smelling aroma. And then he goes on and says, but yet avoid all of these wicked things. They shouldn't even be named among the church. But let's be honest. Uh, if we're honest, a lot of the problems we have at church is because our testimony before the world is not very bright, right? It, it, it's, it looks so many times identical to what's in the world as what is in the church. But yet Paul said, let it not even be named Right? There are some sins that it shouldn't even be, we shouldn't even dabble in. 
right? I, we all sin and we all struggle and we all fall short of the glory of God. But the Bible tells us that there are some things that we are not to be involved with. It shouldn't even be mentioned. It shouldn't even be considered that that would be a part of what God's people do, okay? Uh, it's just an amazing thing here to what the difference between someone sold out for Christ looks like and someone who is not. And then if you flip over to Galatians 5, if someone would like to read Galatians 5, verses 22 through 26, very familiar passage of Scripture. Amen. So we see two examples of what it looks like to be led by the Spirit, uh, to be producing spiritual fruit. And, and what we see here, I think, is a good picture of what the character of these individuals is going to be like. For me personally, I believe the church at this point is gone. Okay, And so the church is gone, so these individuals are not worried about uh, hospital visits to sick church members. They're not worried about their goal is to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? That is their goal. That is their mission. That is what God has ordained them to do. And uh, we're going to look at that in just a minute, but it's almost like he's setting the standard to don't forget Christ is going to return. Christ is going to come back. He is going to rule and to reign. And you are going to see what that victory looks like in these individuals who God has worked and moved through them because if you remember what we were just looking at in the beast, right? We were looking at him. We were looking at his false prophets. We were looking at his people who have his number on their head. We're looking at those who are doing what he wants them to do. And it's almost God says, Satan has his, but don't you forget, I have mine. Right? He has a mission to destroy and to corrupt and to pollute. But don't forget, during this time, I'm going to be reaching people. The good news of Jesus Christ is going to continue to go forth. Don't lose Hope. Don't give up. And uh, we see this, and then I'll stop. I want to just show you here in Psalms 37 um, some verses about the Lord protecting and working through his people. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power, and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. 
but the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. A wonderful promise that God has when he has a purpose and a plan for someone's life that he is going to accomplish that plan. That he is going to work, that he's going to move, even though it seems the wicked are winning, that they will face judgment. And so it's this beautiful picture, I think, of God reminding us, hey, I'm in control. All right, I've got it all taken care of. Questions, thoughts? Well, verse 6, we see another um, vision of heaven and what the Lord is going to be doing. And uh, if you've got your notes here, it's just a reminder that God has a plan of compassion and mercy, right? We've seen Satan's plan, and it is one of death and destruction and control. But even though the Lord is going to come back, the Lord is going to have his people, that his plan is one of compassion and mercy first, Starting in verse 6, it says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Some people have said, well, that angel could just be a messenger. It could be a person. But yet when it goes on and says flying in the midst of heaven, I think it is referring to an angelic being. Having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment extends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience or endurance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So he tells us Christ is coming back. He tells us that the 144,000 are going to be successful in their mission of preaching the gospel, being protected from the things of this world. But he wants to show us again some hope some more encouragement. They're having an everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. 
Some Bible commentators believe that this is an angel that brings this message to the 144,000. Others believe it know that it is an angel who is going to fly through the sky through a supernatural one last opportunity for people to hear the gospel. But either way that you believe, it is a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as witnesses to all the nations and then the end will come. All right? Now if you look here, when he says that to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, and then he begins to explain how some of this judgment, this end is going to happen. Babylon, as we can look in the book of Revelation, if you flip over there, we're not going to uh, to read all of it. But in chapter 18, you can see the fall of Babylon. And that word for fallen, fallen, is a futuristic, aortist action or event. It is repeated twice for importance. Right? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And why would this matter? Well, if you have lived through the persecution, if you have lived watching your family and friends not be able to buy and to sell, if you have witnessed all of the wickedness of the earthly system, you need that encouragement that, hey, they are not going to win. They are not going to win. Look what it says in Revelation 18, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. In Revelation 18, verse 21, it says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying thus with violence, the great city Babylon, not great as in godly, but great as in it was a powerful. It was a city of authority. It was a city that accomplished a lot, even though it was wicked, shall be thrown down and shall be found no more. And so it tells us this, this, this evil city, this evil Entity, whatever you want to view it as, and you're reading through Revelation, is going to fall. And that is encouraging, but don't miss what that next angel says about all the people who have taken the mark, all of the people who have fallen to pray to that wicked system, those who have worshipped, those who have been a part of that. They are going to face the judgment of God as well. And don't miss this because we get a picture of what it's like for all eternity for those who do not know the Lord. I said this a few Sunday nights ago about a pastor that I know that doesn't believe in hell. And uh, someone come up to me Sunday at church and says, I know that pastor. I've heard those sermons. And, uh, and, and they said, did you really go on and say that a person who doesn't believe in hell and the judgment of God is probably not a Christian? I said, I think that's what I said. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you'd have to go back and get the tape, but, uh, I'm pretty sure that's what, I, that was the terminology I used. But don't miss here in verse 11. And the smoke of their torment extends forever and ever. 
And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now some people will view this as this is what the condition of Babylon is going to be like through the last judgments, right? When we look here in chapter 15, in chapter 15 we're going to see these bold judgments poured out and that this is going to be a picture of what it's like. Others say, no, it's not a picture of what it's going to be like on earth. It's a picture of what it's going to be like in hell or in the lake of fire. Uh, But look at Revelation 19. And I think we see a very good explanation of this. If you know, Revelation chapter 19 is one of the most uh, encouraging, exciting chapters in the Bible because the beast and his armies are defeated. All right? But look what it says in verse 20 and 21. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So he's talking about the ones that had led these people from chapter 14 astray. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so we see the the two individuals here who are immediately thrown into the lake of fire. But those who die in rebellion um, are, are going to be thrown into this place when? After the great white throne judgment that we'll read about as well. But look what it says here in Psalm 116, and then I'll stop and we can talk. Because it gives all of this heartache for those who are not believing. But look at verse 13 there. Then I heard a verse, voice from heaven saying to me. This is a, a voice from heaven telling John to write this. Okay? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And so you say, well, so all of God's people that have died aren't blessed? No, that's not it. But what he's doing here is he is encouraging those who are going to lose their life throughout the tribulation period. Psalm 116, verse 15, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. Precious is the sight and precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, right? It has always been something that is precious to God when one of his children comes home, all right? But for their benefit, for the encouragement of what they're going to say, go through, right? Here is the patience of the saints, Verse 12, here are those who keep the commands of God and the faith of Jesus. So those who are not going to betray their faith, those who are not going to take the mark of the beast, those who are going to stand faithful, they're going to die. They are going to die. Will all of them die? I don't know that. I, you know. But what it says is, is don't give up because God sees it. But I think it's interesting too though, rest from their labors and their works follow them. 
Oh, this is a, a, a tricky little phrase that a lot of people have gotten uh, bent out of shape with, but I think it's just a reminder to us what Jesus said about storing up your treasures. Right? Standing faithful to the end, being obedient to the things of God, even in the face of persecution and death, while they're going to take everything earthly from you, don't you worry. You are storing up treasures in heaven where rust cannot get there. And so I think chapter 14 verses 1 through 13 are a beautiful encouragement, a reminder that God is faithful, that God is going to do what He promised to do after spending two chapters, verses 12 and 13, of seeing this enemy that we have, seeing the enemy that the Jews will have, the enemy that those who are saved during the tribulation period have. And so it's the Lord encouraging them with what's going to be going on. And so questions? Yeah. And they borrowed it from Miller, Miller's Adventism, which yeah. predated Seventh day Adventism. And it was all about them setting dates of Christ's return. And these angels would be the, the proclaimers mm-hmm. of Christ's return. Yeah, it, uh, so the division between the Adventist and the Seventh day Adventist, I believe, is like October 1844, they call it the day of great disappointment. That was one of the dates that was set. And that was kind of the shift where Millerism kind of faded away and uh, Seventh-day Adventism kind of took over. And so if you are not, if you didn't hear that or you're not aware of that, Dave is, is talking about, if, if you've been to Thompsonville and you've went to West Frankfurt, you see it's called what? Yeah, yeah right? Three Angels Broadcasting. Uh, and it is, like he was saying, how... That started in a, with a faith that predicted dates. And was it Miller first, and then it was the lady that took over? Yeah, Ellen. Yeah. I can't remember. So, so even here, right here in this little area that we think we're so secluded from and, and so different from, right? You, you watch the news and you watch all these college kids marching in support of Hamas, and you think, man, if that was my kid, I would, you know, but, but friends, even right here close to us, there, there are things being taught that, that are very dangerous, right? And so uh, I appreciate him pointing that out because that just didn't even cross my mind uh, just right down the road from here. So is Babylon New York or what's the consensus on that? Well, I think um, it, if you read over there in chapter 18... Um, we see Babylon, as some people view it, um, it can be a, some people have viewed it as the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, others have viewed it as a revived Roman Empire. Um, some have viewed it as uh, a system of evil. And what we're going to see there in chapter 18, if you, if you look, when it says Babylon the Great has fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, um, it, it really is, in chapter 17, when you look at it, all right, the scarlet woman and the beast, it tells us here 
um, mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abomination of the earth there in verse 5. Um, it, some people view it as historic Babylon, right? Tower of Babel, the Middle East. Others view it as the false religion that will come from there or could be other places. So I don't think it is, I don't think it is New York per se. I think it is going to be that center point of, of what it talks about there in chapters 17 and 18. Some people have tried to say that the eagle from the east in chapter 12 that saves Israel out of the desert uh, could be the United States, but that's well, that's one of the very few references I think that that people have tried to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. It could, it could, or it could be a few elections. You will see um, a betrayal of Israel. Not for lack of love on my country. Oh, absolutely. Well, absolutely. I think fifty-seven percent of college students polled from the ten leading universities in America were sixty-eight percent in favor of Hamas, and that their actions were justified because of Israel's mistreatment. The beheading and murder of children was justified by 68% of college students in the 10 leading colleges in America. We're not very far away, folks. Uh, I don't think we realize just how much Satan has infiltrated colleges, um, big cities, um, you would be surprised by the liberal stupidity I hear from people that attend this church from time to time about things like that. And I, I say that with as much love as I can. Um, but, you know, it, it's just, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So, right now in my personal Bible study, I'm doing a Bible study on the difference between illegal immigration how God calls us to love the refugee, and what does the Bible say is the response of government to defend a nation. And um, the Bible teaches that God has established government to protect its people, to establish borders, and to set laws. And so illegal immigration is defilement of the law of the land. So it's a sin. To seek asylum according to the legal ways is a biblical concept. And so... Uh, people say, what about people that come here illegally and get saved? And, well, Paul wrote a book in the New Testament that said, you need to go back to your master and live out your Christian faith in your home. Now, I can already tell you that some people listening to this are going to say, well, Jake, you're racist. You don't like people coming across the southern border. No, I'm trying to give you a biblical example of what it says. You love the refugee. You care for them when they're here but yet it's still defying God's ordained role of government. And so uh, that's one of those things right now I'm studying, and I have already found out from just a few discussions I've had that I am in the extreme minority if you are not gray-headed or bald-headed, all right? Uh, the extreme minority, but it's still what the Bible says. 
And so we have to get back to understanding what God's word says about every issue in every way. So that was just an extra. While I would agree with you with the illegal immigration, I fully support legal immigration. Absolutely. Absolutely. My family minus one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The 144,000, I believe, will survive through the tribulation. It is the multitude of people who come to Christ because of them that are going to lose their life. So everyone has, so the rapture has happened. I believe the rapture happens at the end of chapter 3, right? The seven-year period that is going on now, okay? These evangelists are going throughout the whole world preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. Multitudes of people are being saved, Right? You're seeing the judgments. You're seeing the seals. Um, and this is a chapter to encourage and remind us that God has this under control. So you can, that you could be saved over tribulation. Yes. Okay. Yes, so there is a difference of opinion. All right. Some people believe there will be no Gentile saved in the tribulation. It, the gospel will just be preached because there's no temple of Gentile court in the new temple. Other people believe this is just for the Jews around the world. I fall into the category of it's Gentile and Jews. So, because they're in verse 6, it says, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And so it doesn't just say, no, it just doesn't say the Jew, it's to all people. So the gospel is going to be preached to all people, and who's going to be saved is, is above my pay grade. So, but those who are saved because of the preaching are most likely going to lose their life. Hope that clear. Yes, and that's what people say, right? Well, I, 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 I'll get it right when that's happened. Well, I think that's not going to be the case. I think it's going to be bitterness, hard-heartedness. We even saw in chapter 13, I think it was, no, chapter 11, there will come a point during the tribulation period, if you remember, I think it was, oh, my brain's not working. This book is eating me alive. Um, I think it was chapter maybe 10 or 11, I don't remember, where it says that there is a point where there isn't going to be more people saved, if you remember that. The hearts have been so hardened uh, that there is a total refusal to the things of God. And I wish I could remember, it's somewhere in your notes. It's somewhere in here. The one thing too is it's a it's not up to us to soften our heart and our heart. Right. That's the soil. It's yeah. the Holy Spirit that softens that yeah. that heart to be able to receive. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like oh okay I'm gonna just flip a switch on I'll, you know right. So this is the seven-year period of the tribulation. I think he is just giving us a picture of what's going to happen. Like he's going to come back, but he's not back yet, right? This is Yes, that's why this chapter gets so confusing because it, it gives us this picture of Jesus on the earth, right? Standing on Mount Zion. But I believe it is just, he is telling us he is coming back. The evangelists are going to make it through. Well, I think that's the difficulty, right? Because we've, we've always been told the Holy Spirit in 
2 Thessalonians is going to be pulled. But yet, if there are people being saved, which there has to be Jewish people being saved, well, I think that's the difficulty. Because in Romans... Yeah. Well, in Romans chapter 11, I believe that is God's promise to the Jewish people, that He is going to work through the tribulation period. But you cannot be drawn without the Holy Spirit. And so I think that's the great question. Is the resisting, is the containing power of the Holy Spirit gone? He's not going to stop evil anymore. Or is the Holy Spirit going back to heaven like He did in the Old Testament? That's where you see the disagreement. And I think if there's going to be Jews saved, the Holy Spirit still has to be at work, convicting, working, and moving. And so I lean toward more that his resisting power of evil. He's not going to hold back any evil at all. Whatever is the depravity of man's heart is going to be fair game. They can do whatever they want, however they want, whenever they want. But I think the Spirit is still going to be drawing the Jewish people because like it says here in chapter 11, um, I say then, in, in Romans chapter 11, if you want to flip there, has God cast away His people? Paul just spent all of chapter 10 talking about his physical brothers, Israel. Okay, In verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel all right, is that they may be saved. All right, He spends the whole chapter 10. And then in chapter 11... He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleaded with God against Israel? All right, Elijah was pleading against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And so flip down there to verse 11, right? I say then, have they not stumbled that they should fall? He says, Israel has stumbled and fallen and rejected the Messiah. Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. All right? And so if you want, you can flip down through there. Uh, and it talks about even in verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until... All right? He says, Israel is going to reject Jesus until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's where some people will say, okay, when the tribulation happens and the church leaves, no more Gentiles are going to be saved. Right? That's one of those verses that people will say. But look at verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. 
As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul says, don't, don't, don't think that God is done with Israel. He has a purpose for them in the future because he made promises to them. And I like it there because it's the same terminology that Paul uses when people had tried to convince them that they missed the rapture. Right? If you read over in the book of, of um, oh, uh, Thessalonians, when Paul's talking about the rapture, right? Oh, my fingers are fat and they're not working. I use it at every funeral I preach. Oh, very yeah. Chapter second, First Thessalonians, chapter four, starting in verse thirteen. But I do not want you to be ignorant. That word is not to be derogatory. It is meant to be uninformed. Right? Paul doesn't want you to believe a lie, to believe what Satan has to say. Brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. I want to stop right there. What that means is there are going to be people trying to convince other people that God's done with the Jew, that God is not coming back for his old people. And Paul says, don't believe that. All right? Don't, don't give any attention to that. Because he goes on and says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord will himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Don't miss that first sentence and the last sentence. He says, don't be uninformed. There are going to be people that are trying to convince you that he's not coming back. Don't believe it. And he says, when you lose a loved one and you're separated from your loved one and you think you've missed getting to see them again, comfort each other that death is not the end, right? We will see each other again. And when the Bible gives us a warning, it is because it's going to be an issue. And so we have to know these things just like God is going to work with the Jewish people and he's going to be doing amazing things. And so it gives us hope, right? Confidence that, man, one of these days I'm going to see my loved ones and I'm going to be with them for ever. And so that's a great question. And I, I hope that helped. I, I got kind of sidetracked there because it was like, he uses it here and he uses it here. So, so I, I think there, ha I think that it, it's, the Bible definitely teaches us that the Holy Spirit is the only one that can work in our hearts and deal with us. So I think, if there's going to be people saved during the tribulation period, the Holy Spirit has to be at work somehow. So, naturally, we're not going to go. No, no. And like you said, something about about what we've already learned. Could the Lord use that? I think he, I can, but I think it has to be a, a heart knowledge, not just a head knowledge. So, I think that is a that is one of those issues that I keep trying to decide what I think about the Holy Spirit because when you read it there in. Second Thessalonians, since we're already here, I'm probably running. Oh, I'm out of time. Goodness gracious! Sorry. Sorry, right, good stuff. So when you get there in Second Thessalonians, right? 
He's already talked about the rapture. He's already talked about what the Lord's going to do. And then he writes them again and says, hey, come on now. I told you you didn't miss it. There's still a great apostasy coming, right? Then we look there about the man of lawlessness, how he's coming, and all those things. And um, it says it there in... um, Let me see here. Already at work. Yeah, verse... Seven, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Sometimes I think we have added world into that, but it says out of the way. And so if you have the MacArthur Study Bible, like I do, okay, and a lot of you do, so I don't, I don't want you thinking I come up with this because you know me. It's, it's too smart. Huh? No, no, I got lots of things I don't agree with MacArthur about too. This refers not to the spatial removal, therefore it could not be the rapture of the church, but rather a stepping aside. The idea is out of the way, not gone. Colossians 2 verse 14. Where our sins are taken out of the way as a barrier to God. This restraint will be placed until the Antichrist is revealed at the midpoint of the tribulation, leaving him, as we know, months to reign in Daniel 7, Revelation 13. So that's kind of where the issue is, out of the way or out of the world. So, And there are other places in the Bible it talks about that I'm sure. I just, I don't have Google in front of me, so I can't remember all of them. So, well, you know what? Since, since we're looking at rapture passages here, one that I came across, I'm going to find it again. I just get my finger on one. So, so, 1 Corinthians 15 is the other place that it is also talking about the rapture, which is great. 1 Corinthians 15. What verses are you at? Okay. I'm looking down like 51, 52. Mm-hmm. 51, 52. Yeah, our final victory. But we shall be changed in the moment, the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Those verses. Would you, would you agree with that, Pastor? Well, I think there are two views on that. Some people view that this is what the eternal um, you're going to have to be made into to be with Christ forever. So some people view this as what will happen for for those who have not died and have gone into the millennial kingdom. Uh, there are others who view it as a picture of of Paul quoting, like John MacArthur says, Isaiah 25, Hosea 13. Um, the hope of the resurrection makes all the efforts and sacrifice of the Lord's worth. So, but and I'm not saying that I hold to this view. Yeah, that would kind of be fodder for a mid-trib because that last trumpet would be Revelation 10, the seventh trumpet. Well, I think. Well, some people would, like I said, I'm trying to look what it says here. Some people view that as that trumpet is 
when you see the dead in Christ rise and then you will have more trumpets. I'm trying to decide what that, I can't remember what the word last there is in that terminology there, what the original one was. There's just something I've been chewing on here, you know, and I'm looking at this broad scope. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out my eschatology. Yeah, I'll have to research that a little more exactly, but... I think the issue is with last. What is that? Is it a final or is it an ending of an age kind of? So it depends how you hold to it, right? So some would say that this trumpet, the dead in Christ arise, the church is gone, and then you end into the tribulation period. I can't remember if that word is end, as an end of an era. I can't remember exactly what it means, but I'll have to look it up and answer that one next week since I'm out of time. Any other questions before we hit this last point? Really, really. Oh, wait, I got two more points. Never mind. We're not going to hit it. Because even though the Seventh day Adventists have one of those three angels with a trumpet in his mouth, it doesn't say it here. I don't think there's a trumpet after, the, after Revelation 10. Oh, that's a good question. I'll have to go back and look. You know. Other questions? Remember Paul's words. If there's a concern, be on guard, right? Be on guard for those different things. So, all right, next week we will look at verses 14 through 16 about Christ judging, uh, and then we'll look at the destruction of God's judgment, and then we will uh, jump back into chapter 15. And then that should help, right? 12, 13, or 14 are the really where everything gets confusing because it's like, when is this happening? Where is it happening? But then you get into chapter 15 and you begin to see these judgments just rapid fire and then things move to the end. So 12, 13, and 14, remember, are those verses where everybody usually quits reading the book of Revelations like, boy, I don't understand what's going on. And so hopefully this has helped a little bit. <laughs>